Spirit, lead us where our trust is without borders. Let us walk upon your waters wherever you call us. Take us deeper than our feet could ever wander and our faiths will be made stronger in the presence of our Savior. Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. Cry aloud, spare not, Lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and shew my people their transgressions, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore we have fasted, they say, and thou not seest not. Wherefore we have afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge. Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head? as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Wilt thou cast, wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Then, they sh then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine sh health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be your reward. Then you shall call, and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If you take away from the midst of the of your yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never fail. And they shall be of thee, and they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Forget my name, remind me who I am. In the mirror, all I see is who I don't want to be. Remind me who I am. 
in the loneliest places can remember when graces tell me once again who I am to you who I am to you tell me lest I forget who I am to you that I belong to you when my heart is like a stone and I'm running far from home remind me who I am when I can't receive your love, afraid I'll never be enough, remind me who I am. If I'm your beloved, would you help me believe it? Tell me once again who I am to you, who I am to you. Tell me lest I forget who I am to you, that I belong to you, to you. I'm the one you love. I'm the one you love. That will be enough. I'm the one you love. Tell me once again who I am to you, who I am to you. Tell me lest I forget who I am to you. That I belong to you, to you. Isaiah was a lover of the cautionary tale, always teaching his listeners who not to emulate like those ritual fasters whose temporary hunger meant little to the Lord. Yahweh was after heart change, salt, and light. Something of substance, sacrifice to feed the poor, hospitality toward the homeless, daily practices of pure compassion, leading to the kinds of intercessory prayers the Lord is only too pleased to answer. And yes, he was and is prepared to receive all manner of supplications, being intimately familiar with our every need. But he prompts us to begin at the beginning. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So from Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unto heaven and earths pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of all the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.
23 years ago, yes, it's been that long, <laughs> REM recorded that song, and it took their CD out of time from mere Earth orbit in sales into uh, uh, the high stratosphere. Uh, Michael Stipe, in an interview, suggested that without that song, they probably would have only sold about 3 million copies of, uh, uh, of the album out of time. Instead, they sold over 10 million. And without trying, this song that they basically wrote because it had a catchy mandolin line and, and it sort of was, from their perspective, easy to dance to. I'll let you be the judge of that. <clears throat> without trying, this single became an anthem for the emerging post-Christendom world that we're inheriting. David Kinnaman, in his book, You Lost Me, defines a generation of post Christendom millennials. He talks about nomads, people who have walked away from church but still consider themselves Christian. And prodigals, people who have lost their faith and no longer consider themselves Christians. And exiles, people who are still invested in the faith but feel stuck between the world as it is and the world the church aspires to be. And while Kenneman's book is about a generation of millennials whose maybe first experience of rock music would be R.E.M., he's really speaking to all of us in our culture today because it's not just millennials who are nomads and prodigals and exiles. <clears throat> we know people in their 50s and 60s who are nomads and prodigals and exiles. We know people who have lost their religion. And Kenneman, being a good consultant and a keen observer of the culture, suggests that to engage these post-Christian millennials and others, we need to restore three virtues in the church. He says we need to recover the priority of relationships in the church. The church ultimately is not about program. 
as hard as we try to make it about programs. It's ultimately not about program. It's about how we relate to one another. Now that Kenneman doesn't mean that that means we're always happy with each other. Relationships are, if they're good relationships, you struggle at them. <clears throat> I mean, I'm an aide on the Enneagram, so if you haven't had a good fight with me yet, I don't know if we're good friends. That's how I figure out who my friends are, because we duke it out. And some of you have been very gracious about helping me live into that. <laughs> you know who you are. So Kenneman calls for the recovery of relationship in the church, that the church ultimately must be about relationship. He, he also says the church must be about vocation. We live in an economy where every middle-aged man in this congregation is worried about the future because we're one bad phone call away from a pink slip. And we all know it. We all feel it. The, the, the days of uh, hitting your 50s and being able to coast to retirement are over. And we worry if our jobs will still be here in a year, six months, six weeks. Not and not just men. <clears throat> and on the other side of the picture, if you're in your 20s coming into this economy, it's hard to break in. It's hard to find that good job that pays well with good benefits. It's hard to find that American dream that we've been sold on. The economy, however much it's coming back, is still letting us down. And so Kinnaman says, let's stop talking about jobs and start talking about vocation. Who are we called to be? Not just what are we supposed to do. Who are we called to be in this world where, where people lose their religion? How do we find a sense of vocation, a sense of God's call on our lives that enables us to do and to be all of what God wants us to be? And the third thing that Kenneman invites us to consider in a world that's losing its religion is to recover the place of wisdom. Far too often the church has been about telling people what they need to believe, doing the theological heavy lifting for us in advance. Just ask the expert, whether that's the pastor or some other figure out there, and we'll do that. And Kinnaman says that's it's not an interesting project anymore. What is interesting is together figuring out how to live in the world. Finding, sharing wisdom with one another. That there is wisdom that the millennials have that some of us who are, well, let's just say we're post-millennial, <clears throat> need to hear. And vice versa. We used to say back in the days that I read Christian education and youth ministry books, that the job of ministry to young adults was to prepare them to lead the church. Nah. 
job of ministry today is to call each other to be the people of God together. And the reason we have nomads and prodigals and exiles is because we've let one another down in the world of relating to each other and sharing vocation together and finding wisdom. And so we think of religion not in the way that word was originally intended. Religion from the Latin word religio, which is the same root word that we get ligament for, not that which binds us together and to God, but instead we've defined religion as that which constrains us and throttles us and chokes the life out of us. And who wants anything to do with that? So losing our religion might be a good thing. Isaiah, in his uh, writings in chapter 58, goes looking for true religion. And he finds it in a surprising place. Isaiah 58, 1-12 is one of those texts that just not always sure what to do with because it really cramps my style. <clears throat> Isaiah spends the first five verses of chapter 58 basically declaring the failure of worship as an activity or as an event. He's talking about fasting here, but he could mean all of worship because for the post-exilic Jew returning to Jerusalem, fasting was central part of the life of worship as the new temples being built and as, and as synagogues are being formed throughout the land of Judah in this uh, time past the exile. Fasting becomes a central way of demonstrating piety. <clears throat> and in the post-exilic world of Judaism, doing worship right was everything because they had done it badly for a thousand years. And they had gone into exile because they had failed at worship, or so they thought. But like most of our religious activities, we tend to wander off into a great adventure and missing the point. All you have to do is go back to 1 Samuel 15. Saul is king, and he disobeys Yahweh's command. And he brings the booty from a, from a victory. And he's confronted by Samuel. What is all of that? What's all the sound of all that livestock? Oh, oh, that, yeah, I was going to make great sacrifices to God. <clears throat> and Samuel says, God does not care about your sacrifices. God cares about your obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In the period just before the exile, the prophet Micah, and we talked about this last Sunday, gets up and gives a primer on what it means to follow God. He says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Sacrificing thousands of rams isn't going to cut it if it isn't matched with doing justice and loving mercy. And walking humbly. So Isaiah, in this post-exilic context in chapter 58, 
reminds the people of God. It isn't about how well you do worship. It isn't about how well you fast. It isn't about how well you you perform the rituals of the faith. Because worship, according to Isaiah 58, is social justice. Verse 6, Isaiah asks this rhetorical question and then identifies four forms of social justice. Feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked. And this last one, a bit vague, but giving identity to people. Because here's what happens in most societies where there are haves and have-nots. The haves have an identity. They are rich. They are powerful. They have their act together. They have what they need. But the have-nots are nobody. How many of us drive down Central or exit the freeway and see people who are homeless or panhandling or whatever, and we develop tunnel vision. We look at them and then we look down. And they are without name, without identity. And Isaiah says, part of social justice is restoring dignity to everyone, giving them an identity. Isaiah says if we do this, if we engage in this, if we worship in this way, God will deliver on four promises. He will heal us, verse 8. He will be present with us, verse 9. He will give us light, verse 10. And he will provide us with abundance beyond our measure, verse 11. And Isaiah finishes this this set piece on what true worship looks like by declaring that worship and social justice actually conspire to a new missional purpose. To repair, to restore, to rebuild, to renew. Isaiah makes it clear that worship that does not lead to justice does not please God. But I think he's also making the case in a roundabout way that justice-seeking not rooted in our hunger and thirst for righteousness is not justice. It might be us being good liberal middle-class people, but it's not justice. It might be us paying attention to charitable opportunities, but it's not justice. And so Isaiah sets a a backdrop for us this morning, a, a backdrop reminding us that justice and worship are not are not two different things. And that we can pay attention to one and not the other. But that instead, the true worshiper of God is someone committed to both. Jesus picks up on this in his Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 20 is a transition text. Sermon on the Mount begins with these Beatitudes. These really cool, pithy sayings that are attributed to Jesus. And then, the end of chapter 5, there are these, you know, it is said that you should do such and such, but I tell you that you should do this instead. Sandwiched in between there is this pivot passage, verses 13 to 20, where Jesus summarizes the Beatitudes in verses 13 to 16, declaring that following him is about preserving and illuminating, that our lives lived in light of the character described in the Beatitudes is a life that preserves and illumines, that takes care of, preserves, holds on to, makes it possible for things to be retained, and gives light, pointing the way in darkness. And then Jesus frames the core of his ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 21 to 48, with a reminder that the way he is proclaiming is grounded in the Torah. Jesus isn't making this stuff up. This is all stuff that comes out of the Hebrew Scriptures. If we want to understand what the Old Testament is saying, we read Jesus. And we discover that he's immersed in the Torah. And that whether we need to pay attention to anger management or faithful families or truth-telling or peacemaking or love of enemies, which make up the core of his ethical teaching in chapter 5, all of that is formed from Scripture. And so Jesus is giving us a hint about the way of justice, the way of shalom, the way of what it means to be a follower of his. And he's saying to us, our ethic has to be one that preserves and illumines, one that is grounded not in our good intentions and the conventional wisdoms of the day, but in the scriptures. Salt and light ain't about following the rules. If you're looking for a checklist about whether I have been salt and light in society, Jesus just told us that we're missing it. Salt and light is about figuring out in the midst of, along with in relationship and in vocation and with wisdom, figuring out how to preserve and how to illumine. And so I want to suggest for us this morning that the resilient church, we've been talking about resiliency over the last number of weeks and months, the resilient church is a church that seeks justice. Now again, we don't do that because we're, you know, we voted a certain way in the last election or because we have a certain political philosophy. In fact, all of our political philosophies come under judgment. I don't care whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, or a Green. 
your political philosophy does not come up to snuff with the kingdom of God. And mine doesn't either. The resilient church seeks not a political platform, but justice. Justice is where relationship and vocation and wisdom intersect and begin to form in us a way of life. Justice is where we get religion. Justice is that which binds us to one another and to God and to the community we live in. See, if we only care about worship, Isaiah would say, if we only care about worship, then it, all that matters is whoever shows up. And it's all about whoever shows up and did we do it right. But if we care about justice, then we care about one another. And we care about the God who is present with us. And we care about the community around us. And that impacts the way we live together. Justice is where we get religion. It's where our trust is without borders. It's where our, our faith is deepened, deeper than our faith could wander. It's where our faith is made stronger. In a world where people all around us are losing their religion, the church must act positively for justice. As we enter into post-Christendom, the answers in terms of being the church are not going to be found in how well we do Sunday morning. It's going to be found in how well we interact with the community we engage with and whether we love our neighborhood. The promises of grace that Isaiah makes seem to be linked to acting for justice. We want God's presence in our lives deeply and desperately. And the message from Scripture over and over again is pay attention to justice. Pay attention to the other. Justice preserves people and lights a way out of their wandering. And the question becomes, how do we work at preserving one another? How do we work at preserving our neighborhood? How do we work at preserving... How do we work at that? <laughs> Tell us, Ophelia. Ultimately, justice is a public work. As sure as laying sewer pipe or building a road or striping Brockton Avenue for bicycles is a public work, so is justice. And so justice can be just as boring as the public work stuff. Do I get an amen, John? Amen. amen. But it's also full of opportunity rich in the possibilities because every one of our gifts become unpacked for the cause of justice. 
Being the church isn't about following a bunch of rules or agreeing on every point of theology. It is about doing justice together. And so we're at our best as God's people when, with respect, we learn to dissent from the conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom of the cultures around us, And in the midst of that dissent, we offer love. Because that dissent and love is what leads to justice. It's that, that bifocal way of living that doesn't take the conventional wisdoms of this world for granted as fact, but loves everything in our midst and works in the world as it is to usher in the world as God intended it to be. So this morning, some questions for us. Are we losing our religion or are we seeking justice? Does our worship, personal and corporate, call us to justice? How are we as individuals and as a community acting as salt and light? And what are the ruins and foundations that Isaiah talks about in chapter 58, verse 12? What are those ruins and foundations that God is giving us to rebuild? So one more thing. The wisdom of Bishop Desmond Tutu. If you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. We're not called to neutrality. Doesn't mean we get it all figured out right the first time. But we're called to act. Justice is about bringing relationship and vocation and wisdom together in action. And in that action, to be the rebuilders and the restorers of ruins and foundations. Let's pray. Grant us in your Spirit's anointing, Lord, the oil of your Spirit that, that flows into our lives and through us into the world. Grant to us the capacity to be people of justice not people who get it right all the time, not people who adjudicate fairly, but people for whom relationships matter, people for whom vocation matters, people for whom wisdom matters. Give us the boldness and the courage we need to be a just people. In the way of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and receive this sending and then our closing song. Go from here and do justice. Not the justice of I'm always right and you're always wrong, but the justice of right relationships, the justice of true calling, the justice of wisdom shared back and forth. 
So go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.